Hey everyone, welcome back to the Health Hack Podcast. My name is Andy Kraft. And I'm Aaron Kraft. And today we're going to cover how vitamin D may just be the juice you need to take your strength and cardio training to the next level, the health impact of pet ownership, how having a sibling with a disability improves empathy, what you see before you die, and then some interesting studies that came out this week on the never-ending debate between meat and veggies. So we're going to kick it off with this vitamin D story. We've talked about vitamin D a lot. It's always been in the context of immunity generally, but this study looked at how it improves cardio fitness and upper limb muscle strength. And this one was really interesting because it was looking at twins. And twin research is really interesting because obviously it's two people who are genetically identical, for identical twins at least. And so what this does, what this research does, it helps kind of measure like the contribution of genetics to a particular intervention as opposed to the environment. So you're basically controlling for the genetic variations by using twins. And so that's what's really useful about twin registries, which is where this data came from. And they looked at 37 sets of identical twins, younger people, average age was like 25 years old, non-athletes, BMI was very similar between the two groups. The training frequency and training duration before the study was similar between the two groups. And they had the control group do nothing, or they took a placebo. And then the twin or the other group, the supplement group took vitamin D3 for 60 days, 2000 IU orally. And then at the end, they so just to reiterate the, the whole purpose of the twins, like one twin would take the placebo, the other twin would take the vitamin D. So they did this for 37 sets. So it was like 74 people total. Afterwards, at the end of 60 days, they tested the vitamin D in the intervention group, the vitamin D group, and they found that serum concentrations of vitamin D increased by 70%, and there was no change in the control group. And then they tested two things, cardio fitness and muscle strength. And so the cardiorespiratory fitness improved in the vitamin D group by 28% compared to the control group, and they measured that by VO2 max. So on day one, on day one, there was no difference between the two groups. Then they did, there's no physical intervention, all continued to do the same routine. And then at the end, they did this test. It's like where you basically like walk or run on a treadmill at various speeds, and then they measure your oxygen consumption. So VO2 max in the vitamin D group, simply from the vitamin D intervention increased by 28%. And then they checked muscle strength, uh, like grip strength, and that increased 18% by within the vitamin D group. And again, before the test or before the 60 days, there was no difference between the two groups. So this was, this was really interesting. And this really confirms previous research. Uh, there has been, you know, a lot of talk about how vitamin D impacts muscle strength. I'm not sure we've talked about that on here before, but there are vitamin D receptors in skeletal muscles and in heart muscles and insufficiency of vitamin D has shown to relate to weak muscles, thickening of arteries, myocardial hypertrophy, hypertension, and um, vitamin D intervention has, has shown to help with calcium absorption, with, with helps bones and joints, uh, helps synthesize protein, which helps with muscle growth and, and maintaining muscles. And muscle biopsies have shown that certain muscle genes are expressed 
only in the presence of vitamin D. So our muscles need vitamin D to work optimally. And this was a interventional trial showing that with twins. And then that also applies to vascular muscles, your heart muscles. And um, it basically the vitamin D has shown observationally in the past to improve VO2 max. And this showed that with the intervention, it actually did. That was the cause. Vitamin D was the cause of the improvement VO2 max, again, due to how vitamin D impacts your muscles. So take your vitamin D, especially if you're, you're, you know, into fitness, I actually, maybe more so if you're not into fitness, cause you're not exercising. Vitamin D is great for your muscles. We talk about it a lot with immunity, but it's so important for muscle development and to avoid muscle atrophy. Uh, and that goes for your heart muscles as well. So that I take 5,000 IU a day and haven't had any problems so far. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about vitamin D and immunity. I think this is the first time we talk about like it helping athletic performance. Um, how much vitamin D do you take regularly? I typically take, uh, right now I usually take 5,000, um, the, the one I can only get my hands on 2000, um, capsules right now. So I'm taking like, I do two of those. So I do like 4,000 a day. Um, and then sometimes in the summer when it, like when I'm out in the sun, like every single day, which I am in the summer, I'll work out outside every day. I'll, I'll stop taking it completely just cause I do get so much from the sun, but here in the winter, um, where I'm not out in the sun, I'll do, uh, about 4,000 a day. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And it's like vitamin D it's cheap. There's really no, uh, there's no harm and no downside. Like to, it's very hard like to, to overdose, get to a point where overdosing on this would, would cause you harm. So it's, it's very safe. Right. Um, so yeah, get your vitamin D. All right. What do we got next? All right. So the next is the health impact of pet ownership. Um, I have two dogs. I love pets. So this one was fun to, uh, to read up on and talk about. Um, so sorry for those non dog or, or cat people out there. Um, but the, the two studies I want to look at one was, uh, is pet ownership helping slow down cognitive decline. The other was protecting against disabilities. Now I do want to do a disclaimer that both of these were just observational, so they're just collecting data and looking at associations. I will talk about a randomized control trial after this, but these are simply ob observational. So it's not necessarily the pets causing the outcome. We'll get into that, but I just want to briefly review these. The one of slowing cognitive decline, they looked at around 1400 adults and these are all older adults and they had them basically take a score, a cognitive score ranging for like a, a it, it resulted in zero to 27. So they took a, a cognitive test and they got a, a result, z, a score zero to 27, higher number being better, stronger cognitive uh, score basically. So they, it was a, a five-year period. So basically they took a test before and then five years later they took a test and then they looked at who owned pets. They looked at pe people who owned pets for a few years, people who owned pets for over five years and then people who didn't own pets. So they basically compared their scores before and after this five-year period, and then correlated those scores to people who own pets. And basically pet owners, so pet owners as a whole, meaning you could own a pet for one year or 10 years, you're, you're just a pet owner. Those cognitive scores declined at a slower rate than non-pet owners. So you'd expect, these are older people, so you'd expect in a five-year period that your cognitive 
like your cognitive function declines during that period, but pet owners declined slower. And then long-term pet owners showed the strongest difference. So of all of pet owners and non-pet owners, long-term pet owners owning one more than five years had the slowest rate of cognitive decline. Um, then the second study, similar, it was a similar study, but it was with basically disabilities. They were, this had a 3.5 year follow-up period. So they looked at from year one to year three and a half, who owned pets, and then looked at people who owned pets and didn't own pets and how likely they were to develop a disability. Um, this was really interesting because they broke it out by dog and cat owners. Dog owners had a, if, if you own a dog, Again, this is correlation, not causation, but if you own a dog, you though they had a 54% decreased risk of developing a disability compared to non-pet owners. Um, and then that risk did not, there was no change in significant risk for cat owners. So cat owners and non-pet owners were identical. Dog owners were 54% less likely to develop a disability. I'm honestly surprised that it's not the reverse for cats. I feel like most cats would induce a disability in most people, <laughs> mentally at least. Yeah, you think so. Um, so basically getting into like why, like why is, is that the case for dogs versus cats? Um, there's two big things going on here. It's not just because you own a dog. Like if I just go get a dog, these things are going to happen to me. It's because when you have a dog... Um, the biggest thing is you're more, you're more likely to be more active. You're more likely to live an active lifestyle, take them on a walk, play with them out in the yard. So that's one big, um, reason it's not necessarily owning the dog, but it's the fact that you are more active when you have a dog. Um, thus you have less disabilities and better cognitive scores. And then the other thing that they think is going on here is, um, less stress when you, when you have a pet, you typically, they're kind of a, a good coping mechanism. So if you're having a terrible day and you have a, a dog come and greet you, like that does help. That does make you less stressed. It makes you more happy. Um, so that stress relief is also thought to be a significant reason for pets providing better mental scores and less disabilities. Um, and then quickly just to touch on the randomized controlled trial, because these again are observational. I want to look at some interventional ones. They did a meta-analysis looking at just a bunch of different pet studies. There are very few randomized control trials, mainly because no one's going to fund these. There's really no benefits to knowing whether pets help. Like no one's going to fund this study. Um, really nobody benefits by knowing whether a pet is good for you or not. So no one's really funding these, but they did find seven randomized control trials and all of them were associated with um, a strong, uh, mental improvements basically. And it was specifically for people with mental disorders, with autism, um, children, all of them had more significant mental impact by owning a pet than just your average person. But everybody in general had elevated mental improvements simply by owning a pet. And that's, that's based upon randomized controlled trials. So there's a lot of evidence here on it, some good, some bad. But all in all, um, there's there are there appear to be a lot of benefits to uh, owning pets and uh, specifically specifically dogs. Yeah, I could definitely see like the mental impact. That's when you were talking about that. That's the first thing that popped in my, in my mind is the cortisol. 
Like mm, I know yeah. we, they've done research around college students and, and you know how some colleges will bring puppies on yeah, campus yeah. and that'll reduce the stress and they score better on tests. Like imagine that, but like for your life, you know, right. you have a, a pet that is just during those moments and like dogs, especially, I think more so than cats and maybe cat owners will push back on this. I think dogs have a sense when the owner is like stressed or going through something mm -hmm. you yeah. know they they have i don't know what it is but some sense and and they provide a sense of comfort there and then i know for people that are going through like um with suicidal ideations dogs are huge i met mm -hmm. a guy that yeah. was trying to sell me on supporting um i can't remember the the nonprofit acs i think the, mm -hmm. the pet Council's pet society and, and he said like if it wasn't for his dog like he would be dead mm -hmm. so yeah. i know that's a huge thing yeah. for people um yeah i need to get, i mean i need to get a i need to get a pet i got a yard now <laughs> it's, it's on the list I, I figure we figure okay well, if we're gonna get a pet like we want to make sure will can actually like enjoy it mm -hmm. and yeah enjoy the uh the moment of you know opening a box and finding a puppy so <laughs> Wait till he's we like will. maybe two or three before you get one. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't even know what a dog is. Now we've shown him dogs, <laughs> and he doesn't. He doesn't understand. He just thinks it's another human. Yeah. Um. Well, actually, kind of continuing with uh, disabilities. You had mentioned disabilities. Found another interesting study this week that caught my attention about how siblings with disabilities have greater empathy. So they looked, this is actually another twin study. They looked at sets of twins and they looked at instances where one twin had normal development and the other twin had delayed or impaired development. And then they had, there were 63 instances of that. And then they had, they compared those sets of siblings to twins where both twins had typical development. So neither was disabled. And they looked at three things. They looked at cognitive empathy Emotional empathy and, and pro-sociality. So cognitive empathy is being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. It's, it's understanding why someone feels the way they do, trying to see something from their perspective, you know, putting yourself in their situation. In cognitive empathy, siblings who had a disabled sibling scored 43% higher than the other, uh, I guess the control group. Emotional empathy, interestingly, like, there was no difference on emotional empathy and pro-sociality. So emotional empathy is like you actually feel what they're feeling. Like when someone is distressed, you also feel stressed for or sad for them. You can you share in the emotional experience, and that often pushes people to help the other person. So emotional empathy, was there's no difference. And then pro-sociality is like altruism. Like the, you, you actually help, you're doing behaviors that help other people no difference there which was contrary to what they expected considering that cognitive empathy was higher my guess here is just that maybe it's no surprise but if you grew up with someone that was disabled you see someone else like that or you see somebody in situations that um where, where the other person is struggling you experience it yourself so you you are gonna have just a cognitive cognitively you're gonna understand because you it's easier for you to put yourself in their shoes because you've been in their shoes. So that that makes sense to me. But I think it probably kind of depends on how you were raised. Like I have two two examples of this. So my wife, Katie, she has a younger sister that is um, disabled. She uh, has hydrocephalus and she had seizures as a young girl. And um, basically that kind of impaired her brain development. But if you look at her, you think she's just a normal kid. But as you get to know her, you realize... Um, there's there's some d developmental issues there, and so Katie grew up with this. Is younger. This is Katie's younger sister, and 
I know Katie has made me more empathetic because she's always big on you don't you never know what someone else is going through. Like, yes, like what you see on the outside may not reflect what's going on on the inside. And she grew up with that. Like everybody thought her sister Liz was this normal person and get frustrated when she doesn't respond like a normal person. But in, in reality, there's something going on there. So definitely I've noticed that with my wife, definitely higher cognitive empathy there. But then on the flip side of that, I, uh, there was a, uh, uh, an ex person in our lives who, um, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. He had a brother who was disabled and he was just a complete dick. Like the, he had no empathy at all. So I don't know. It's, it probably has something to do with how your parents handled that disability and, and whether that sibling was older or younger. But yeah, I thought that was that was interesting. Yeah, if everybody could uh, live by not judging people too early, we'd be in a different world. Um, easier said than done, but a good reminder. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so I'm going to wrap up this last story here uh, really short, but it was a really interesting one. Um, it was, you know, the, the around the concept of what the, your life flashing before your eyes. Um, there's very, there's not much known about our, what happens with our brain as we're dying or after we die. There's, we, we know very little about it, mainly because you don't, you aren't, you know, under surveillance when you're dying you you're usually kind of it's it happens by itself you're not you don't have all these wires hooked up to your brain to study the brain as as you die that very rarely happens so we know very little about it but there was one case that happened this past week where they were actually able to do this they they hooked up this guy to uh, an eeg and he actually had i believe a heart attack while he was connected up to it and he ended up passing away um while this thing was connected to his head, while while his brain waves were being recorded. So it was one of the few instances where we actually saw what happened inside the brain as somebody was passing on. And it it uh, looked at brain waves, you know, before and after his death. And it found some interesting things. And um, the one thing it looked at or one thing it found is an increase in something called gamma oscillations. Um, this really spiked in those last 30 seconds before his heart stopped beating and gamma oscillations are involved in the dreaming process and in the memory retrieval uh, or the flashback process. That's that's what brainwaves are kind of activated during those processes. So um, that that's a very interesting finding because like something mm. in his brain in those last seconds before death was recalling something in his past. Um, right. Some, some type of memory retrie retrieval was going on here, uh, which kind of goes to, uh, I guess, prove that life flashing before your eyes may actually be a thing. That's great. Now, this this wasn't planned, right? They're not like, hey, you're about to die. Can we plug, uh, plug some electrolytes to your head? I don't think it was planned, I, no. I doubt it. I doubt it. No, not that. in this case. pretty cold. Yeah. That, yeah, that is super interesting. Like you would expect, I don't know, the brain to maybe, and I'm sure maybe this went along with those gamma oscillations, but you would expect some sort of like panic or mm. or fear, your brain kind of going into, into survival mode. But like right. those last 30 seconds, it was recalling things. It yeah. was yeah. retrieving memories. That's so fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, it'd be 
incredible to get to a point to where we could actually, you know, see what those memories are, figure it out. But uh, maybe maybe Elon will help us get there one day. Um, they yeah. also they kept this on after obviously after he died as well. And there's actually some brain activity going on even after he was like declared dead. I, I don't know how long afterwards. It just said a short period of time. So even for a short period of time after being declared dead, after his heart stopped, there's actually some brain activity still going on, which was also fascinating. What that brain activity is, we'll never know. Um, but yeah, some interesting findings and hmm. it's just crazy how much how much we don't know about the human body and how much like we're learning every single day. And there's so much, so much untapped in the human brain that we just don't know. And uh, I don't know, right. it's crazy. Yeah. Especially in the brain. I mean, and with this specific, I guess, we'll, we will all find out someday. Yeah, one day, yeah, yep. Yeah, that's super interesting. All right, so this week is the CrossFit Open. The CrossFit Open kicked off. Did you did you do the uh, workout? I did. I uh, I did not by any means try to go break any records or anything, but I did do it. Yeah, it was um, it's it was three handstand wall walks, uh, twelve single arm dumbbell snatches, and then fifteen box jump overs. For 15 minutes straight okay yeah i haven't done it yet i may try i've been kind of out of crossfit um since my son's been born i've been trying to just do more cardio just stuff move. just to do yeah. something but yeah so this next month is like the crossfit open and it is the time of year where people young and old just go and just destroy themselves <laughs> physical therapists cairo crystal healers they love the crossfit open because they know that they're going to get a huge influx of people when it ends and more importantly uh, than than trying to heal yourself is preventative care do what you can to give your body the fuel it needs so that you don't injure yourself or uh you know you don't cramp up in the middle of a workout and, and try to work past it and end up dropping a weight on your head so the best way to do that is through element thousand milligrams of sodium 200 milligrams of potassium 60 milligrams of magnesium comes in a bunch of different flavors simply just add that to a pack of water i did this last year before the open and didn't cramp up at all you know despite um the, the amount of volume that's one of the things with crossfit there's so much volume and it's easy to, to cramp up you need electrolytes and you need you need a lot of them and most energy drinks or uh most electrolyte drinks you don't contain sufficient amounts or in the quantities that you lose them. So Element is a great solution to that. Go to drinklmnt.com slash health act to get yours now. All right, that wraps up the uh, the biggest headlines of this past week. Um, let's move on to our next segment, the fail of the week. And Andy, you're going to talk about, I guess, kind of what we were talking about earlier is the difference between observational and interventional studies, specifically in nutrition. Uh, nutrition is where these studies get really tricky and the uh, most popular topic within nutrition is meat versus veggies. So yeah, this was really uh, kind of frustrating. There were three studies this week that made a claim about veggie or meat consumption. So on February 21st, there was a study that came out and the article was, this, this was the title, Eating Vegetables Does Not Protect Against Cardiovascular Disease Finds Large Scale Study. So that was on February 21st. Uh, a few days later, Actually, no, the next day, another study comes out that says total meat intake associated with increased life expectancy. 
Two days later, another study comes out that says vegetarians have 14% lower cancer risk than meat eaters. And I saw a couple of these on Reddit and I was just curious. I looked in the comments and everyone's like, didn't I just see something saying the opposite of this like <laughs> yesterday? And yes, you did. And there are these studies all floating around. And this is just so frustrating, especially as you know somebody that is into it because you see a title like that and people assume that it's based on high quality evidence. Well, we've talked about the problem with nutrition research, and I just want to go through maybe some issues with each of these and why like, we really need to be demanding more in terms of the, the quality of nutrition research. So this first one, it talked about how eating veggies does not protect against cardiovascular disease. And they did, uh, they got, they did food surveys of 400,000 people between 2006 and 2010 in the UK. And then 10, 12 years later, they looked at incidences of cardiovascular disease. And the big thing that they asked in terms of identifying their veggie intake was how many tablespoons of raw veggies do you eat per day? And then how many tablespoons of cooked veggies do you eat per day? And then that's how they came up with their data. And basically it showed that even those that had higher amounts of veggie intake, they didn't have any lower incidences of cardiovascular disease. It was a little bit for raw veggies, but it was like close enough to where they couldn't really say that there was a big change. And then for cooked veggies, there was no difference between those that really didn't eat any veggies or had low veggie intake versus high veggie intake. Now, the problem with this, again, is food surveys are notoriously inaccurate. Um, I meal prep consistently. Like I just got back from the grocery store. I've got all my meals planned out this week. I eat a lot of veggies and I could not tell you how many tablespoons of veggies I eat. I don't even know why they use that as a metric. Like veggies aren't in a liquid form. Like I cannot. And then what was interesting is like the average amount of veggie intake, I think was like 2.8 tablespoons. It's like so three yeah, pieces was, of broccoli. That was weird. It was like, it's not, it was not like a table, like a grape tomato. It's like that fits in a tablespoon pretty well. Like is that right. one serving of fruit veggies for the day? Like, yeah. It's like three or four grapes. Yeah. It's weird. Like, I don't know why tablespoons is not a good metric to, to measure. That seems like a terrible, normally like at least do cups, you know, that's right. a little more. And if I were to go answer that question, I would have to do some pretty intense calculations to figure out how many tablespoons I ate just this past week, let alone like mm -hmm. on a, you know, over the course of several years. So data in, data out kind of, or garbage in, garbage out as, uh, as we say in the accounting world, like if you, the data that you get is not good. The data that you put out the the results the conclusion is not going to be um real good so that was the first one second one talked about how total meat intake was associated with increased life expectancy and a lot of people in our community posted this um as a you know reason to to increase meat intake now this one i will say was a little better this one was not based on food surveys so what they did they did an analysis of 175 populations across the world supposedly represented 90% of the world. And they listed um, all the countries and territories with data on meat intake. Um, they, they were looking at meat consumption or meat production in those populations. So they weren't asking about like just asking random people, hey, how much meat do you eat? Do you eat? I mean, they were looking at like economics, you know, economic data on meat production in those areas and looking at 175 sets of 175 populations across the world. And then they looked at, made sure that those populations also had data on mortality. 
And they found that those that consumed meat on average lived five years longer than those that didn't. Now, I think this is better data um, than, than surveys, but they didn't really look at, like, there's a lot of other things they could have looked at. Like, they, the only confounding variables they looked at were total calories and GDP and urbanization, which all do impact mortality as well. But they didn't look at, you know, exercise or uh, alcohol intake or smoking. Like, there, you know, s- certain populations may exercise more, and, and that could be the reason why you know, the mortality looks better. But I think, again, this this kind of research, this observational research, points us to, okay, where can we actually dig in and now look for causality? And that's the problem is, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on the last one, and then I'll kind of give my thoughts. Third study was vegetarians have a 14% lower cancer risk than meat eaters. So this is actually from the same data sources that the first study I mentioned. They pulled data from the UK Biobank, surveyed a bunch of people, and they divided it into meat eaters, low meat eaters, fish eaters, and vegetarians. And then they did an 11-year follow-up to look at uh, cancer cases. Problem here is, again, number one, surveys, and they only asked about those foods. So they asked... How many servings of meat do you eat a week? How many servings of fish do you eat? And then like how many um, servings of like veggies do you eat? And then through that data, they categorize people into meat, low meat, fish, vegetarians. Didn't ask about alcohol. Didn't ask about like other diet, like sugar and, and bread and processed food. And so you're really getting a very small picture. And then what that showed was that vegetarians compared to meat eaters had a 14% lower lower cases of cancer. Again, most of these studies are just garbage. Like food surveys are not accurate. I think observational research is a very valuable tool, but it's very tricky with nutrition. And the point of these observational this observational data should be to point us towards where do we where do we do randomized control trials? I know randomized controlled trials are very expensive, but like I, I was just thinking, like if we took all the money and all the uh, you know time that it takes to do all these observational studies, like how many of these have we seen? Mm-hmm. Thousands, yeah. thousands have produced the same amount, just looking at different pieces of data and then putting a clickbaity article on it. It's like, what if we, uh, one randomized controlled trial is worth a thousand observational. Like if you could just take a bunch of these it's, it's not telling us anymore. Like mm-hmm. we know that there's something to meat and veggies. So let's actually dig down, but it's, it's never done. It's just, it's easy. You can basically pull sources of data and you can kind of manipulate it with the way that you ask the question, um, the different serving size that you use, the categories you group things in to tell any story you want. And then you get, you know, to click baby headlines and it's all political now. Like everybody tries to use observational data on these observational research for their agenda and I just wish we could stop with these crap studies and, and finally dig into into more trying to find causation instead of just looking at correlations. Yeah, you can with observational studies, you can find anything to fit your narrative. If you want to like if you want a piece of nutrition advice to fit what you want to believe, you can find something on it. And it'll probably be observational. But with interventional, it's much yep. harder to find something that's like at, they're not as, you know, polar opposites. You're not. Typically, you're not going to find as much polar opposite um, results in a, a well-done interventional study. All right, uh, let's move on from that. Um, and that's the end of our news articles. We're just going to end here with a weekly plug. Um, I guess, Andy, since we were just talking about this, I think your plug of the week talks about this. So why don't you go ahead and start off with what yours is? 
Yep, we posted those on Instagram. Go check out Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers on Joe Rogan. Uh, we've talked about Rob Wolf. On, we've had a Rob Wolf on the podcast. Uh, so we, look at that. We've had a Joe Rogan guest on the podcast. I mean, insane. <laughs> uh, but no, Rob Wolf, he's uh, him and Diana Rogers are just like really two of the the most evidence-based people out there. They will contradict people in the paleo, even though Rob Wolf like kind of popularized the paleo, paleo diet. He will say things that go against the the common narrative in that community. So, you know, he's not afraid to uh, offend people because it doesn't go with the, the narrative, either narrative, wh- whatever side you're on, I guess, with nutrition. Diane is the same way. They're, they wrote a book called Sacred Cow that we mentioned on here before. Talks about why meat is good or the, the, the what is it called? The ethical, environmental and nutritional case for better meat. And they talk about that for like three hours on on Rogan. And if you don't want to read the book, go check out that. They hit on a lot of good things and it's 100% worth your time. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a really, really good summary of the book. So if you don't want to read a whole book, three hours and you can kind of get the gist of it. Uh, my, I have a product to plug and we've talked about this many times, but I'll f- officially plug it here. And this is a blue light blocking glasses. We have daylight savings and what, ending or coming up start is it starting or ending it's starts daylight savings starting yeah Yeah. no i don't know it's flipping back to what people actually like either way it's gonna be bright until like 10 p.m um i guess if you live in the midwest when uh when daylight savings switches again in march uh, march 21st i believe so it does take it's it's hard on your body to adjust to that timing um because you're used to it being dark and all of a sudden it's it's bright so late so having something like blue light blocking glasses allows you to make those adjustments a lot quicker so you can wear them um, when the sun would be setting but it's not and your body will kind of adapt to that different lighting a lot better it's also great for when you're like switching time zones using those to kind of trick your mind into thinking it's dark when it's not or just around the house if you want to watch tv late at night but you don't want the blue light to keep you up to suppress melatonin levels you can use blue light blocking glasses to watch tv without the uh without your melatonin being disrupted so we use uh raw optics or ra optics are the ones that we have um a little bit more expensive but they are very effective so um, if you struggle with your sleep blue light blocking glasses are a great uh great little sleep pack all right i think that is a wrap with everything this week thank you guys for listening hope you all have a great week and we'll be back again next monday with another episode